So this evening I'd like to speak a little bit about the, the third of the Vipalasa, seeing what is without a self, as a self. And uh, that insight into emptiness or not-self, how it's uh, called in the Pali Canon, Anatta, is a, cent is a central insight in the Buddha's teaching. And uh, at the Buddha's time, it was a, a new teaching which appeared. Before the Buddha, no one has taught that teaching. And the Buddha made very clear that a deep understanding and experience of not-self is, is necessary for liberation. And then, you know, the word emptiness, sunyata, is also in the Pali Canon, it's, but it's not so often used. And then later on in the Mahayana and in the Vajrayana, the word emptiness is used and anatta is not spoken about. And, you know, the first time when, when that insight occurs is at the level of stream entry, the first of the four awakening moments, you know, path and fruit moment, how it's called. And, uh, you know, we can compare that, like, if the ocean would part and for a moment, you know, we see the bottom of the ocean and then the water floods back in, but the bottom of the ocean has been seen and we won't forget anymore that seeing. So whatever comes after is, you know, is influenced by that very seeing because, it, for example, by the, the first time at stream entry, uh, three of the ten fetters are permanently done away with. And then, you know, at the next level, which is called uh, once returner, Sakatagami, the next two fetters are somewhat uh, lessened. And then at the next level, those two fetters are completely um, done away with. And then there's only the five higher fetters left, which are done away with at the last of the four levels at Arahantship. And I just want to shortly, you know, share with you what those fetters are, because it's a way to understand, you know, how ignorance is step by step cleared away. And as I said at the beginning, you know, the practice is very much about clearing away, about letting go. It's not about gaining more, because through this clearing away, we see reality ever more as it really is. It's not something we learn additionally. It's, it's exactly the opposite. And that's why, you know, uh, it's all about putting down. It's all about letting go. It's all about relaxing in the true nature of reality rather than, you know, frantically trying to find something, to add something. And I think that can really be helpful, you know, to take out some of the the kind of goal orientation, because that the goal orientation gets in the way, really. So those ten fetters, they bind us to the wheel of samsara, so to say. And so the first three fetters, 
which are let go of at stream entry. The first one is a personality belief or Sakaya Titi in the Pali language. The second one is skeptical doubt about the teaching, you know, not really being able to surrender into the teaching because we are not quite sure, is that really true, is, can, can that really work, can I really do it? And so we don't have the grip, you know, with each takes in order to, to kind of go through difficult experiences. We, we always like kind of, you know, turn away and, and, and stop practicing and then, because we are not quite, quite sure if, if it really works. And then the next one is clinging to mere rules and rituals. That's Silapata Paramasa, you know, believing that, you know, if I keep the precepts and if I'm a kind of a good girl, then I'm going to get enlightened. The precepts are definitely very important, but just as, as a framework, they are not making us enlightened. Or, you know, if I do a certain practice or if I kind of make certain offerings or things like that, believing that this alone is enough. So that's the first three fetters which I let go of at stream entry. And the personality belief is, is you know, seeing through the, through the layers and understanding that we are not separate entities. Even, you know, we, we still experience ourselves as such when we go, you know, if we need to go out the door and I can't go through the wall or anything. I need to open the door and step outside. But once, you know, we're thinking about it, we understand that we are not existing separate from the rest of existence, but we are in constant exchange with everything. And today, you know, in the um, elements meditation, that we, we basically demonstrated that the elements meditation demonstrate that constant interchange, the conditionality, the deep, deep interconnectedness of all phenomena. So that's the first three fetters. And then the next two, which are, you know, overcome in, their, in, in its gross form at the one, for the once returner and then completely overcome for the non-returner, a sensuous, sensuous craving and ill will, or greed and hatred, you know, we can also call it. And then the last five, uh, the first two of them are attachment to, to chanic states, craving for fine material existence and craving for immaterial existence. So being attached, you know, to the pleasure, pleasurable feeling of the of concentration and getting stuck on that and not being able to you know, go further in, in the practice. Next one is conceit. Conceit is about you know, thinking I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, I'm or the same than you, just comparing oneself with others. And that's only let go of at the stage of arahanthood, so and it takes a very long time to be able to put that one down. Mm. And restlessness and ignorance is the last one. 
uh, remain what's what still remains of ignorance then so that's the ten fetters and this this moment you know when when we see to the bottom of the ocean just for a moment that's called the fruit experience you know this is when we develop the path for example of stream entry through you know practicing and going on for a certain amount of time and then at one point <clears throat> causes and condition come together and then there is this opening and this this clear seeing to the bottom of the ocean so to say and then those fetters are just let go of and when the water comes back again it comes back again with less power because some of those fetters have permanently been eradicated and then you know we can see in our own mind that suddenly the mind operates slightly or or even you know to a big extent operates different certain things you know which before would activate us they don't activate us any longer so you know when we if, when we think we we might have had such an experience it's very important afterwards to reflect on the mind how the mind operates is there a real difference or not? That's how one can know if this was a true awakening experience or not. <clears throat> and you know, f most important for such experiences to happen in our lives is that we that we. Um, arrange, you know, our practice in, in a way that the meditation practice and our daily lives go in the same direction more and more so that we are, you know, reflect in our life choices what we understand through our meditation. That we are, it's not a separate thing, you know, the formal meditation and our lives, but it becomes one it becomes one process and that's how you know it takes on strength and then you know it becomes like a a, a unit the the life and the practice it becomes one and then it takes on more and more strength it gets deeper and deeper and for that i've brought one of the poems again I'm going to first read the um, poem by Mary Weingast, and then I'm going to read the uh, Derrick which has inspired it. Greatest Joy <clears throat> I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while until they got possessive, or mean, or boring, or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head, and started eating once a day. During the long, lonely nights that followed, I would remember all the nice warm baths, all the late nights and long mornings, waking up next to beautiful warm bodies. One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry. It's not fair. 
no matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Listen, my heart, I know how exhausting it all gets. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. In these moments, you know, there are these moments where this giving up for real happens. <coughs> and this is the original. It's called Nantutara Terikata. The Bikuni is called Nantutara. And she speaks about her life. In the past, I worshipped the sacred flame, the moon, the sun, and the gods. Having gone to a river ford, I plunged into the water. Undertaking many vows, I shaved half my head. Preparing a bed on the ground, I ate no food at night. I loved my ornaments and decorations, and with bath and oil massages, I pandered to this body, wrecked by desire for pleasures of the senses. But then I gained faith and went forth to homelessness, truly seeing the body, desire for sensual pleasure is eradicated. So, you know, she speaks about here, she's tried many different avenues. You know, she was an ascetic who worshipped the sacred flame and the moon and the sun and the gods and she took, you know, uh, she purified the body in, in water and she undertook many vows and she slept only on the ground and, and she didn't eat and many, many different things and also she uh, was into her ornaments and decorations and all kinds of things. She tried all avenues, you know, to uh, find a way to, to peace until she really understood that, you know, that way to peace is coming through, you know, letting go of desire. Which doesn't mean you know, that, it, that we can't enjoy things, but it's the desire which is the, the problem, so to say, and which keeps us bound to the wheel of becoming. And then, you know, whenever we've, we've gotten what we wanted, the desire is still there, and then there's the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, there's no end to it. And really understanding, you know, that it isn't about the things, but it is about the attachment to desire itself, the, you know, the being, being so used to that longing, and you know, being actually addicted to the experience of longing itself. And as soon as it is satisfied with a thing, it doesn't last long. It, it appears again because it's that momentum of longing which, you know, propels us through myriad lifetimes. And somehow it feels like, feels like alive. If we want something, if we know what we want, we feel like we are somebody who is going somewhere and that feels kind of safe. And then you know, once we start to interrupt that process, it's, it's, everything feels a bit shaky because you don't know anymore who you are if you don't want anything. Or 
maybe not want anything. That is so central to our experience of what it means, you know, to be alive. So it's not a small thing to, to uh, you know, undermine that, that process. And we have to always, you know, we have to start from where we are and then just, you know, try different things. Just like Nandutara, she tried many, many things before it occurred to her what the issue was. So I think we need to try many, many, I myself have tried many things in life. Uh, you know, before I was a nun, I've tried many, many things. And, and, then, and then I became a nun and, I, and tried still many, many things in, in the nun's life and always like thinking, oh, you know, I'm just going to do this for a few years and then I'm going to do something else. And, and to just trust that uh, life will show us the way if we are really listening, if we are really paying attention. And... Uh, And for that, it is really in, very, very important, I think, you know, to um, reflect in our lives, our insights, in our very daily choices, you know, the small things. Then the, the whole thing gets, you know, it gets, it starts to um, penetrate our life and... Uh, and then it's, it, it gets more and more strength, and this is how those real breakthroughs occur. If we lift, if we leave what we know to be true, and uh, and even you know, it doesn't all have to be like uh, very lofty truths, but also you know, sm small things which uh, through repeating them take on strength and, and start to, uh, you know, create that confidence in, in that we can do this. So it's a, it's a really a, a mutual furthering by living the insights and, and, you know, and living with the, with the tension or with the stress, you know, which it, which can come, you know, from, uh, you know, having certain priorities and then really living them because it might uh, have repercussions, you know, in our life. With, with for example, with our, when I became a nun, for example, it was was quite difficult, you know, with with the people I was, uh, the circle of friends I had, because quite a few thought I, I had kind of lost my mind and uh, was kind of unpleasant, you know, to be thought about like that and to say the least and what's for example you know if you decide for example you don't want to uh, take drugs anymore or drink anymore you'd lose a lot of friends so-called friends you know who who can't actually meet you there anymore and it can be very difficult and for some people you know if they don't have really confidence can take a long time to be able to um, stand the ground, because it's really very important to, uh, you know, to be sharing 
one's time with, with people who are going in the same direction, going in the same path. And, uh, you know, there's this real quantum leaps, you know, that the insights into those four stages of awakening are quantum leaps which are internal, but they can also be real quantum leaps external, in our external lives. And, uh, and you know, if we re really live according to what we know to be true, then, you know, the life will support those quantum leaps to happen. And, you know, I think I've mentioned it earlier on, the, one of the qualities of the Dhamma is called Opanaiko, leading onwards, you know, leading to um, suitable circumstances so that, you know, the opening of the heart and the opening of the mind is supported by circumstances. And I have experienced it quite a few times in my life, you know, where I was at a, at a point where I wasn't quite sure what to do next, and then some mysterious things happened. And I'm happy to share a few of them, because they were, were only small things, but they changed my life. You know, when I look back now, I can see they were real turning points. Even they didn't look that huge then, but now looking back, I can see it. For example, when I was uh, I was a laywoman, and I was at a, uh, in Thailand, um, you know, living, I was uh, uh, trained as a cultural anthropologist. I lived on an island with fisher people in the south of Thailand, small island. And uh, at the time I was still uh, smoking uh, ganja. And there was no, no, nothing available on that island. So I needed to go somewhere else to get, to get some. And on the trip, I, on a bus station, in, you know, even I was already kind of interested in, in a spiritual life, but I didn't feel it, you know, that was really something for me. And then on a bus station in Thailand, there was a, a Western man dressed all in white with a shaved head. And, and I was thinking, oh, you know, that's interesting. And, and I went, because he was the only, only white person on the bus station, I went to him to speak to him. It turned out to be that he was Austrian which, you know, you don't meet many Austrian people because we are just such a small country. So that was kind of amazing. And then it turned out he had been to the same school as I have been just a few years before me, so I had never made his acquaintance. So, And then we started to speak, and then I asked, you know, why do you dress like that and have a shaved head? And then he said, there's this monastery on Archim Dasa, just a few miles from here. Why don't you go and have a look? So I, I went and had a look and then three days later a meditation retreat was uh, starting there. So I thought, okay, I'm going to stay for a few days and, and see, you know, how it goes. And then, you know, and, and I, then I kept returning again and again to that monastery. And at one point I felt like, you know, I don't want to stay in Thailand. I would like to train with people from my own culture, but I didn't know where to go. And my teacher was already like in his, you know, in his 80s and he was very ill and I knew he wouldn't live much longer. So I just didn't want to stay here if he wasn't there. I, but I also didn't know where to go. And then one day I was just going in the meditation hall and there was a chanting book. 
and I picked it up and it was Amaravati Buddhist Monastery in uh, Herefordshire, England. And then I said, okay, go there. I'd never heard of that monastery before. So there was, you know, many kind of transition stages on the path where I didn't know what to do. But I had a real strong wish, you know, to know it. And then it just came. If my mind would have been closed, you know, I wouldn't have seen the chanting book. Or I wouldn't have, you know, wondered what that man with the shaved head is all about. So it was those, you know, I was kind of interested and I was open to, you know, to be guided. And, and it happened. Yeah, they said, also here coming here to the USA, for example, I never thought I'd ever live, live in America. And uh, it was again at, at a stage, you know, where I felt like I needed to move on but didn't know where to go. And then Isantusika appeared, actually, in England, in that monastery. And she said, come to America. And then she was telling me all the good things. And I was thinking, no, I don't want to go. And, and then she convinced us. And then I, Ananabodhi, and myself, we came. So those things, they have happened many, many times. You know? And I think it's, the, it's this quality, Opanaiko. The Dhamma, if we really live it, it, it has its own... It's a, it has its own intelligence, and it makes itself known. And it's, it's very mysterious, but it does happen. And goal orientation just is just an obstacle, really, because it blinds us. Because we have all of these ideas, it has to be like this. And it's most often completely different than what we think. But what it does, you know, result in, in a, what I call like a gradual refinement of our innate drive for happiness, because that what is true happiness starts to become clear, and it starts to be clearer and clearer. True happiness doesn't come from external things, but true happiness comes from being independent from external things. That is true happiness. It feels different. And it's also called, you know, it's called unworldly happiness because it's not dependent on sensuous experiences. But it, it comes from the mind which is open and the mind which is free of wanting anything. When I was guiding us in the meditation this afternoon, I was speaking about, you know, temporary liberation of the mind, which is that the mind at least for some time, you know, doesn't want anything. And therefore it just stays open. This is like a subtle joy, a subtle pleasant feeling, which is rather sublime and doesn't want anything. And it has put down wanting, you know, for a certain amount of time and gives us a taste of the goal of the path, which is not wanting anything. We still need to eat and need to have clothes and need medicine and all of those things, yes. But there's nothing, you know, there's no more fixation or projection on I'm going to be happy if I have this or I'm going to be happy if I don't have this. 
but there is, it is a very different orientation. The mind is no longer fixating on anything. The mind is just wide open, not judging, not stuck in any kind of dualism, you know, thinking that this is good or bad. Everything is just what it is. It's called suchness, or ta-ta-ta in the, in the Pali language, which is also you know, the root of the word tathagata, which is how the Buddha referred to himself. So we're getting you know, increasingly sensitized to reality. And, and through that, you know, like a deeper and wider range of experience. And, uh, you know, deconstructing all those assumptions. And, uh, you know, then once all assumptions are deconstructed, that would be full liberation. You know, and every time we, we let go, every time we, we really break through, it's like, you know, you take off a tight shoe. You know, when you, go, when you have shoes which are really tight, how painful that is. When you take the shoe off, it's like, ah, like that. And then suddenly everything is okay. Everything is bigger. And then, again, you know, we, we hit the limitations of that way of being. And then again, it's again a letting go. And like that, all the walls in the mind, you know, have to fall over, have to be, you know, deconstructed. Until there are no more walls, there's no more limitations, and the mind is wide open, no, not caught in any dualities any longer. And, and you know, that it all depends on, uh, on the mind being really able to be affected by the way things truly are. And, and the meditation is a training, you know, which helps us to free the mind from its limitations so that it can see more and more what's really happening. Because it's less and less caught in assumptions. And those assumptions, you know, they are, they are fed by, by ignorance, of course, you know, and, and by greed and and ill will, because I think you have experienced yourself probably how it is, you know, if you really want something, the way how you're looking at, at things is, is, is distorted, or if you really don't want something, or have, you know, a certain aversion, for example, against a certain person, then, you know, you, you understand things in a way which are influenced by that aversion. And then we hear things or observe things which are not for other people. They don't hear the same things and, and observe the same things because they, they, they don't have that aversion. And if we are you know, managing to step out of this... Um, 
you know, these judgments, then that feels very vulnerable, you know, because then the sense of ego is very dependent on this, uh, these tendencies, you know, which we have uh, developed in the mind over a lifetime or many lifetimes. And to step out of those tendencies is not easy. And the meditation is, you know, is, are these methods designed to help us to step out of those tendencies and to see beyond. You know, to be able to allow life to speak for itself rather than we are speaking for life and we are assuming it's like this. And, you know, it's, it's this, this vulnerability of what it means, you know, to be a, a human being, to be a, be a, you know, have these mammalian bodies, which are very, very vulnerable, really. It also our minds, you know, we are very, very uh, easy to be influenced, you know, when we are little babies, we are very vulnerable, we can be, you know, if we have really difficult early childhood scenarios, we can be extremely traumatized and have very difficult uh, repercussions. So this, you know, human existence is, is considered very precious, but at the same time it's also very vulnerable. And, you know, and that very vulnerability, if, if we can use it for, for the practice, you know, to be really able to be affected by the way things truly are. That vulnerability is, is, is a great opportunity for, for seeing what's happening and then and adapting accordingly. So the vulnerability itself, you know, can be become a uh, an opportunity for becoming more and more invulnerable. And I think that's why, you know, the human birth is considered the most, pre uh, very precious one or the most precious one because it has this, uh, you know, mix between uh, pleasure and pain, you know, which keeps us on our toes, but at the same time it's not too intense for for those, you know, who have uh, relative good circumstances so that there is capacity for practicing. <coughs> and, uh, you know, that the word homo sapiens, actually the word sapiens means wise, you know, wise, wise mm. being, or homo sapiens sapiens. And, and the word sapere, I, know, I was looking it up, it means to know, but it also means to taste, the Latin word. And to taste means, you know, that it needs to be a real personal experience. In order to, you know, to grow in wisdom, we, it's not just uh, an understanding on the intellectual level, but it's a real experiencing in our own bodies and minds. And for example, you know, today when we were doing this... Uh, Meditation on the elements. You know, when I was saying, you know, don't think about what I'm saying, but just 
allow your allow the mind to respond. You know, when there is when one is saying uh, earth element hardness, and then you know it's not about thinking about earth element and hardness, but it's just about you know observing what what comes up in the mind if that concept is is um, mentioned, you know, and without thinking, what arises, what's the experience. Because this body and this mind, you know, this is our instruments for, for the practice. And, uh, you know, and through practicing in that way to have a direct experience rather than thinking about it, that's, you know, what I mean when I say, you know, to allow ourselves to be affected by by life and to allow life to speak for itself rather than we are speaking for it. And that's what, you know, does adjust and adapt to the way things really are, which always results in letting go. And you know the the practice we, which we're doing today is is a real good example for that. You know, it's like a like the Buddha has given us, like a doctor has given us a prescription. He's not telling us the way things are, but he gives us different methods so we can find out for ourselves in our personal experience. We can have a taste because it's only that which really does it. You know to really taste it personally, individually. It's also one of the um, qualities of the Dhamma. You know, it needs to be experienced individually by the wise. It cannot be given by somebody to somebody else. We can only you know, point and then everybody needs to look for themselves and then experience it in the body and in the mind what needs to be understood so that those you know filters are let go of and put down and ideally not picked up again so for example you know the meditation we did today is you know, we are looking at our experience in a way we might never think about looking like this. So the Buddha has designed those different um, methods, you know, so that we look at features of our experience we usually wouldn't pay attention to. Because if it's, you know, if we are not trained, we are looking just for, you know, getting more pleasant feeling and having less unpleasant feeling. It's certain ways of looking, but we... The ways, you know, in order to liberate the mind is a very different way of looking. And, uh, for example, you know, the, the four satipatthana, the four establishments of mindfulness, it's a whole uh, template, you know, of how we should look in order to penetrate, you know, into the way things truly are. And, you know, um, 
in experiencing the, the natural forces which are working through us and which are making up this body and mind. And when I was saying, you know, going out into the forest and paying attention, for example, to impermanence in the forest, which is very beautifully displayed in all different stages of birth and decay. And then, you know, understanding more and more through, you know, looking again and again and again, understanding that we are just part of that process as well. We are not outside of it. We are just part of it. And then I like very much uh, Venerable Analeo. He has given a, a definition what what is a mindfulness or what is awareness, which I really like. And you know, the word sati, mindfulness and awareness, is actually is a feminine noun. And he says, you know, um, sati is open receptivity giving birth to new perspectives or perspectives, I think what says in English. An open receptivity which gives birth to new perspectives. So, you know, allowing that, uh, open, opening the mind, you know, putting down assumption, putting down opinions, putting down judgments, and allowing that open receptivity to change us, you know, to, to, to change the mind so that it can see differently. And then about the elements meditation, you know, in the, there's the Machamanikaya 140, saying that which you perceive as a person consists of the six elements, the four elements which are, you know, the primary qualities of metta, what we said, metta, not metta, but not loving kindness, but metta, that metta, which is the Earth element, water element, fire element, and air or wind element, and space, and consciousness. So that which you perceive as a person consists of six elements. Ultimately, there is no person here. Person is a mere concept. And, you know, that doesn't say that persons don't exist because I can see you and you can see me. We do exist. But we do exist in a different way than what we think. So we are, you know, we are not existing as separate entities and we are not existing from our own side. And that's what emptiness or anatta means, you know. It's, it's empty of a self. So when you kind of take this body apart in many, many different pieces, there's not one single part which is the core of this body or which can be called me. 
but it's many, 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 many different paths. And we are, we can't say, you know, is it the fingernails which is me, or is it the hair, is it the bones, is it the skin, is it the flesh? No, nothing of it is is me. And and that's what it's meant with. Uh, not self or emptiness. It doesn't mean nothingness, it means just empty of a self, empty of an unchanging core. It does exist, but it exists not from its own side. It exists as a process, a coming together of causes and conditions which is constantly changing. So there is a difference between nothingness and emptiness. And this body and this mind, you know, which are empty of a self, they still can can act by body, speech, and mind, and they can be unskillful or unskillful or skillful actions. Karma is still made. So there's a big difference between nothingness and emptiness. So it's you know, letting go of all of dualities between it exists, it doesn't exist. It's, it's neither one extreme nor the other extreme, but it is conditioned. Causes and conditions are bringing phenomena together and then if those causes and conditions change, the phenomena change. And because it is like this, liberation is possible. And you know, the, we, we could say that the teachings of the Buddha is is uh, helps us to choose skillful causes and conditions so that this liberation process starts to untangle the tangle of. Uh, Greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, which keeps us bound in uh, the wheel of becoming. Through those ten fetters I was mentioning earlier on. And if they, if they are cleared out through inside, then, you know, the wheel starts to slow down. And if the wheel starts to slow down, then there's more capacity you know, for seeing clearly and allowing life to speak for itself and really being able to hear it. And then if we live according to what we hear, if we really embody that, then life will speak to us louder and louder. And and that's the process, really. And because the Dhamma is onwards leading, you know, if we really cooperate, then quite mysterious things will happen, you know, helping us to you know, to have the circumstances we need to to continue to unravel the tangle.
And I like that very much. The, that's a, from the Tibetan tradition, you know, comparing the body, the body with a with a riding animal, which we have borrowed from nature. And you know, when the time comes to give it back, to just give it back, because it has never belonged to us. It's just borrowed. So use it well, you know, take care of it, feed it and wash it and do everything it needs so that it's healthy. And then one day we give it back. And then if the if consciousness is not yet ready, you know, then it will take a new riding animal. And, and so it goes, you know, until the work is done. And we don't know how long it takes and it doesn't really matter, really do the best we can and uh, the more we really live what we know to be true the more strength the part takes on you know if we don't live it and it's all just in the mind that is not enough this is not powerful enough because the entanglement is so profound you know it needs really our whole application in order to make some progress here. And some people go as far as, as, as uh, Santusika and I, you know, shave the head and take these funny clothes and so on because we feel like we need a lot of support, you know, to stay on course. But there's many, many ways how that can be done and it's different for everybody, you know, what works what keeps you kind of, keeps the flame alive, you know, of, of the practice. And at different times in one's life, it might be different. So just going to read that one more time. Greatest joy. I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while until they got possessive or mean or boring or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head and started eating once a day. During the long lonely nights that followed, I would remember all the nice warm baths, all the late nights and long mornings, waking up next to beautiful warm bodies. One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry. It's not fair, no matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Listen to my, listen my heart, I know how exhausting it all gets. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.